Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome everyone to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me for today's roundtable are my delightful co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning, John. And hi, C. Lutmers. Hello. And today uh, I want to talk about warrior, what it means to be a warrior. You know, we use this word warrior in lots of different contexts. And, you know, you look in the dictionary and it says, the first definition is one who wages war. And yet we use the term warrior in lots of environments, including the idea of a spiritual warrior. You know, Dan Millman has this fabulous book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and it's uh, how does one how does one reflect on the idea that a warrior is someone who wages war, and yet one can be a peaceful warrior. So I wanted to explore this a little bit. Uh, you know, we're in a, the the greater environment around us is full of lots of uh, lots of conflicts, many of them increasingly violent, uh, if not physically, at least verbally. And I just wanted to to explore a little bit with my co-hosts. What is what does it mean to be a warrior, and and are you ever a warrior? So let's let's start with uh, with your sense of what that word means. 
Well, you know, it's it's interesting you went to like a, a dictionary definition of the word because I never think of the word warrior as somebody who wages war. I would use words like warmongerer uh, or something like that. But for me, I never think of warrior as somebody who goes on the offensive. A warrior, I think, is someone who perhaps engages in battle or conflict or war if they need to, but it's from a defensive um, mode, which says this is something that I have to do or engage in as a result of something that is coming at me, rather, and I meet it head on, which I think is very much what being a warrior means to me, is the willingness to meet whatever is coming at me head on, rather than I'm going on the offensive and I'm actively going out there to try to uh, engage in war, if we're going to use that terminology. Um, I, I, I tend, to, like to talk about spiritual warrior, I tend to think of warrior completely separate from the idea of somebody that goes out and engages in war versus somebody who is going out and uh, is is driven and is not in, in, intimidated by anything and is willing to take on the challenge of whatever is before them. Mm. How about you, Mildred Lynn? I love this question because I had a recent incident in my life and I was walking out the door into the unknown, jumping on a plane and going to another place where I knew I would have to gather all of my skills and ability and discipline and the and courage. And the umbrella vibration was resolved. So for me, a warrior is a person who acknowledges that they have these abilities and skills within themselves. They've disciplined them. They're showing courage. They're aware of themselves and the situation. And they're making the choice to go into battle and not to force their will or their stance on anybody else, but to master themselves, master, become a, a master of their own fears and doubts and whatever to be able to show up, put the stake in the ground, have resolve and move forward as a warrior. So, so for you, it was, it's this idea of, of resolve in the presence of challenge. Yes. And, and also equally as important to be drawing upon a discipline, to be drawing upon courage, to be drawing upon skill sets, to be drawing upon diplomacy in a complete state of awareness and making the choice to do that. Uh, so I like I like that. That that's one of the things that uh, res that resonates for me is uh, the idea of drawing on skills in a disciplined way with resolve and clarity. Right, the idea that you are very particularly focused and choosing your actions, so you're not reacting. It's almost like a, like the you know Carlos Castaneda in his conversations with Don Juan. Don Juan always talked about being impeccable as a warrior, and the idea that you would it, the way to be impeccable is to be disciplined and focused, uh, and so that you're always present to and accountable for your actions, mastery of the self, right? And I see you came at this with a slightly different perspective in that you were talking about it in the context of a defensive action. Now, would you ever imagine how in your life, I see, uh, if you would, um, 
when are you a warrior? Uh, well, so I did one thing that I wanted to, you know, agree with that Mildred had said is uh, that a warrior is somebody who has had the mastery of the self, who has honed the skills. And I think that for me is the difference between a warrior and a fighter. A fighter just goes out there wanting to fight. Whereas a warrior is someone who has developed themselves, has honed those skills. So they are prepared if there is a fight that comes, but they aren't actively out looking for a fight or to start a fight or to engage in a fight. And, you know, when you talked about Carlos Castaneda, it made me also think um, uh, Paulo Coelho has a book actually, and, and actually a bigger concept too, about being a warrior of the light. And, you know, to me, what that says is it says, and this would be more broad even just for that idea of warrior in general, is as a warrior of light, it is someone who has mastered themselves and cultivated that sense of light in themselves, meaning I'm I'm doing what is best. I, I walk in the world and that I think is a warrior, someone who walks their talk and walks in the world in a certain way. And a warrior of light would go out not looking for a fight, but says, if I come across and encounter darkness, whatever that may mean, I'm not going to run away in fear. I'm not going to shy away from it. I am going to stand up to it and be ready to stand there solidly and firmly in order to counteract it uh, rather than allowing it to get the upper hand, to win, to to inflict damage of some sort. So, so is there inherently in the notion of warrior the idea of violence? Uh, I, well, I would say no. I would say that a warrior is someone who has seen the negative repercussions or understands the negative repercussions of violence and engaging in violence and has learned that violence is not the way. That's why I, I love the, the book that you mentioned, Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Because it really is suggesting that violence is not the inherent nature of a warrior because you can also master yourself so that you walk in the world as a peaceful warrior, a warrior for peace, rather than a warrior who is somehow always looking for or always engaged in something violent. So I would say warrior has transcended violence. And John, I find warrior like money. Money is neither good nor bad, or the vibration of warrior like money. It's neither good nor bad. It's the intent behind it. Hmm. And the other thing I wanted to add was I find when I, if I choose to go into warrior mode, I find that I automatically center and go into a zone. And in that zone, I become very clear and I become very objective and I notice that I'm very non-emotional. So one of the areas of mastery in terms of a warrior, and I'm not saying I'm a master, I'm just saying this is an observation of myself to whatever degree I'm able to do this, is part of the awareness is choosing what you make something mean emotionally. So you start to value the reservoir of emotional energy you have and choose not to use it all up, hmm. recognizing that emotions color the situation. So that's so I find your breathing changes, you become very objective, you're in some form of a zone, 
and everything's very clear and you're neutral emotionally. So you're neutral emotionally. I, I wonder what role, how, how does the ego shift when you go into warrior mode? For me, I find I'm outside of time and space. So does that sort of mean that your ego start, has, has less sway in your decision-making process? It means that Mildred is observing Mildred. Mm-hmm. So a larger aspect of Mildred or maybe a purer aspect of Mildred or my soul clicks into gear and observes the human aspect of myself. So I don't know where that puts the ego, but I do know that's how what happens and how it feels. Mm. I see. Do you have any thoughts on, on the the role or lack thereof of the ego when you're in warrior mode? Uh, well, I think for the warrior, ego evolves to a place that says it's not about winning or losing. It's not about overcoming. It's not about forcing. So the warrior doesn't think that battle has to be engaged in in order for somebody to win or somebody to lose. The the warrior may be prepared for battle, but may come into it and realize, you know, there is a way to do this through diplomacy. So I'm not going, just because I have the tools for battle doesn't mean I have to use them or engage them. And so I think the the baser level of the ego would say, I'm, I'm hankering for a fight and I've got to get in there and show that I'm stronger, I'm more powerful, I can beat you. Whereas the evolved ego of the warrior says, I'm going to come into this prepared, but I don't necessarily feel that there is a need to show my might or to show how many tools I have and to use those in a way that is going to overpower and overcome the other versus I can meet the other in the middle. And that can be more important so that everyone benefits and everyone comes out of this a quote unquote winner rather than it's an either or proposition which the the lesser evolved ego I think would operate from. Mm. Yeah. Now there's another another way of uh, another definition of a warrior and that is that, uh, someone who is engaged in battle or sustained struggle. And you know the the notion of jihad is uh is the, I think the definition of that is something like sacred struggle. So where do we see in in the world where do we see sacred struggle where 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 do you see sacred struggle where i see sacred struggle would be in a lot of nonprofit groups one that comes to mind is ocean alliance and they do scientific research on whales it's long term research and toxins in the whale fat and whatever but I always look at that organization as having a sacred purpose tied up in the essence, the sacred essence of the whale and the interface between man and the whale or humanity and the whale and the oceans. And that's something that's a struggle that's sacred that goes on day after day after day. Now, the people who are involved in this organization and many other organizations have to find the strength within because they have numerous setbacks 
a lot of people don't understand what they're doing. And plus, you know, the cherry on top is that the work that they're doing is work that's only visible over a long period of time. And we're in a society where everything is fast, fast, fast disposable. So I would say to me, that's an example of a sacred, a sacred struggle or a sacred striving. Hmm. I see. What about you? It's probably similar. I would see sacred struggle when it's not about whatever is being done is not about just the glorification of one person. It's not about the need for acknowledgement necessarily of what they're doing, but it is a belief in I'm doing what is right or I'm doing what is needed. And there's a sense of what I'm doing is for a greater good or a betterment of a larger group of people, whether it's for all beings or a segment of all beings, but it's not just about me. So I see it in things like uh, you know, uh, doctors without borders mm-hmm. and the people that will go into places that need medical care that don't have access to it. And they're not doing it for fame and glory. They're not doing it for money. They're going in because they feel it's the right thing to do and it's what is needed. You know, it's the same, the people that were going in and continue to go in to deal with the Ebola crisis in Africa. You know, the, those are warriors. They're willing to go in and engage in the struggle to to overcome this thing that is affecting many people, even if it's not affecting them personally. Uh, I, I see it in people who engage in, well, a speaker I went to see last Sunday, he started an organization like 30 years ago that still is around called Living and the Living and Dying Organization, um, which uh, helps people who are terminally ill to die consciously, which means uh, the, the sacred struggle of not giving in, not giving up, but instead finding a way to maximize and utilize whatever is happening and to learn from it rather than to see it as a curse or why me or a pity party or whatever. Um, but, you know, those are the kinds of things that I see as sacred struggles. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily in the limelight. Sometimes they end up being there, but You know, I mean, we could look at certain people. I think that people like Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela, you know, certainly were engaged in sacred struggle. And and of course, they have the recognition and then they have things that have come from that. But it's those kind of things that I see as being a warrior uh, and and that that sacred struggle. And I also think sacred struggle means that you simply walk in it and are doing it all the time in the world, wherever you are. It's not just a one-off thing. It's not just if I'm here or if these conditions are right. So it's, it says that I, I walk this, I live this, and I'm always this. Therefore, this is simply who I am, not just something I do. Yeah. Well, so interesting, the, the uh, organization you talked about, I see, uh, helping people who are terminally ill. Uh, I I wanted to share with our listeners that, you know, in a lot of ways, just just being present to your own suffering to your own pain can mark you as a warrior can invite you into warriorship you know uh, one of the things about a warrior is that they uh that a warrior will engage in the struggle even if they lose even if they know they will lose uh, because, you know, we all, ultimately we all succumb to death, right? Uh, and in the presence of, 
you know, so that's a really good example of a battle you're guaranteed not to win, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, but but there is value in being present to the challenges that emerge in that con- you know when you're in that condition. And so I think for me, there's a part of being a warrior is the willingness to acknowledge that the struggle that you're engaged in isn't necessarily one that you will win and may be inevitably one that you will lose, but it doesn't diminish the value of your presence, of you being present to the struggle, to the challenge. So, uh, you know, I like the sense of the warrior spirit being that spirit of discipline, focus, and clarity and mastery of the self in the presence of whatever happens to be challenging you or inviting you to be distracted from that sense of focus and clarity and resolve. So what's your favorite training regimen for being better warriors? For me, it's constantly working on myself and constantly learning and trying to improve myself, hone my skills, and then be able to take that and walk in the world fully embodying those skills at all times. Like I said earlier, where I walk in the world saying this is who I am, not just this is something I do in specific situations Mm. versus I simply am a warrior rather than there are times when I need to be a warrior. Ah, I like that. Uh, Mildred Lynn, how about you? Uh, For me, I'd have to say it's the discipline of observe, 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 observe yourself, react, then look at your reaction in an objective way to see if that's something life supporting or non life supporting. Mm, So it's check and balance, check and balance, check and balance. While in motion, if you happen to be in battle, a warrior in battle, or prior to going in and after coming out. Hmm. So it's observe, observe, observe. And I did find this really neat quote from Carlos Castaneda, if I'm if I'm pronouncing his name properly, because <laughs> we know how challenged I am in that area. <laughs> I promise you the quote is good, though. It says, nobody is born a warrior in exactly the same way that nobody is born an average man. We make ourselves into one or the other. Mm, yes, very well said. Well, and on that note, uh, I, I want to wrap our roundtable. Thank my co-hosts for a great conversation. We're going to be hearing more about warriorness in the show, so I invite you to stay tuned. Um, and we'll be right back. Thanks, guys. Have a great show, John. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest. Or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light.
Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And I want to share with you a long and difficult conversation I had with Mars a few years ago. Yes, this is Mars, the god of war. All of us lightworkers, we, we love to hate the god of war. War, really. Who needs it? It sucks. It's pointless. It's cruel. It causes suffering. Wastes resources. Why do we have it? And why do we need a god of it, for heaven's sakes? Wouldn't it be great if there were no wars? Wave your hand and have peace reign? Well, as usual, I don't get to have or share the easy platitudes. Sometimes the introspection becomes so deep it's like surgery. Surgery while I'm awake. Here's what happened. I was preparing for some deep journey work, calling in the spirits. And after the four directions, I get to the compassionate spirits of the heavens. And for some reason, this time, I'm really taking my time and not just calling their names and asking for their help. I'm actually greeting each one of them as they arrive. And I call to the sun and the moon. And I start working my way through the planets and Mercury, Venus. And I get to Mars. And my nice, happy, deep, comforting journey work becomes something else. I think it was at this moment that this really was the first time I actually met him. As he approached my space, I was shown the horrors of war. First, the suffering of the soldiers. But even more, the suffering of the innocents who are caught up in it grist for the mill of war, ground into pulp of flesh and wails of suffering. It was horrible. And he stood there, his sword pointed up, resting against his shoulder, one eyebrow slightly raised, looking at me expectantly, waiting for something from me, testing me. How could I welcome him? How could I welcome him? Why would anyone welcome him? I reflected on my Celtic and runic studies. The North, the, the land of difficult places. The Morgan, the, the battle warrior, the Kaliak, the whole notion of battle rage. I checked in with as many angles as I could think of. It still didn't fit. It wasn't complete. It wasn't complete enough to account for all that horror, pain, and suffering all that scarring and soul loss and senseless death. He waited. So I looked at the only place left to look. I looked at the horror, at the pain and the suffering. I stared into that grinding maw as it consumed families and cultures, swaths of Mother Earth. I took in as much of it as I could stand, and then I took in more. It was, the, it was the only place that made sense to look. And I knew I wouldn't understand unless I did. It was horrible. What is this, I cried. What is this, this thing that is so present and so insatiable and so seemingly unstoppable and so cruel? And he said, calmly but not comfortingly. 
It's the remainder. Oh, it hit me like a punch in the gut. It's the remainder of our lack of integrity. The remainder of our lack of pure intention. The remainder of our arrogance. The remainder of our self-indulgence, our willful self-delusion, and our unwillingness to face the consequences of our actions. I saw it as clearly and purely as a math problem. A division that should come out perfectly, but didn't, wouldn't, couldn't. Always a remainder. Some something left over. War is the remainder of our personal, cultural, and societal choices not to speak the truth. Not to keep our word. Not to clean up after ourselves. And not to listen and accept the truth with a warrior's heart. We have war because we choose not to live like warriors. It's what happens when we sweep the inconsistencies of our logic and the entreaties of our conscience under the rug. War is the remainder of our lies. And the bigger the lie, and the more of us that engage in it, and the longer we tell it, the larger the account holding the remainder. Inevitably, it must be purged. Mars is so often depicted as a warmonger, always ready to start it up and roil the waters. The Mars I met would say, Yeah, go to war, early and often. Lance the boils, cleanse the wounds, get it done as soon as possible. In fact, he would counsel that we go to war in every single breath. Because then, we would each examine, reconcile, and exhale our remainders. There would be no account to be purged, because we would all be warriors, living impeccably in every moment. But we don't, and so that account has to be managed. Like death, Mars has a difficult and dirty job. But unlike death, Mars can rightly scold us for making his work harder. Death catches us all. Eventually, we either stop running from her or simply lose the race. Her embrace is, ultimately, gentle and compassionate. But Mars, he looks at us and growls, Why? Why do we choose to ignore his counsel and sentence ourselves to such horrors? He sometimes scowls at the other gods and goddesses too, so comfortable and patient and didactic in their godding. Things will work out, they counsel him. Be patient, they're inherently good. To which he responds, Do you guys ever watch this show? This remainder I was shown is not optional, because we live in a world of challenge, complexity, and free will. How large the account becomes that is indeed optional. It seems that arrogance and greed make it grow fastest, and self-indulgence. Ignorance and lack of personal discipline are also factors. Fear of death, too, if truth be told. But death catches all of us eventually, so why bother being afraid of it? We should fear war more than death. I think living and dying as warriors 
is much better than living and dying in war. The Mars I met would agree. We'll be right back. You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. This is Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella. Now, I'm a self-professed gardener, and lately... That's been taking on a broader and more subtle meaning for me. So in today's reflection segment, I thought I'd share with you my perspective on what it means to be a gardener and to live in a garden. I was a product manager in high tech for years. Product management in high tech is is one of those incredibly challenging positions where things move fast under your feet, technology shifts, customers' needs change, the market moves in radical directions based on a new discovery, And all the while, you're constrained by resources, trying to build a product that somebody will want. But you won't find out if you're right, really, for about three years. From the time you envision the product to the time you actually figure out whether the market is receiving it well, it's three years. Three years is a long time to wait to get feedback on on your decisions. And in high tech, that's an eternity. There's only one job that I've been exposed to that's harder. And that's being a parent. The cycle time on whether you've done a good job is about 20 years. And your ability to make mid-course corrections starts to shrink about seven years into the exercise and plummets to just about zero after seven more. Yep, for me, it's the ultimate test of a gardener's ability to cultivate. Now, we live in a garden. This planet is a garden. We have so many ways in which we express that fundamental truth. You get what you pay for. You get out of it what you put into it. You reap what you sow. You are what you eat. Garbage in, garbage out. There are many more. All these phrases point to a fundamental characteristic of the human universe. We are gardeners. And we are also not separate from the garden. It's one of those things that makes humans special. Last month I shared my musings that everything is the best in the world at something and that humans are the best in the world at creating change. It's another way of highlighting that we are mighty powerful gardeners in this garden that we call Earth. And it's not just restricted to the Earth the planet. We're also gardeners in the noosphere, that ephemeral land of ideas and influences and knowledge and experience. We are shapers, pruners, sowers, and reapers there, too. One of the most powerful realizations I've had over the years is just how much influence I have over my most intimate garden, myself. I've shared in the past that adversity is the universe's way of illuminating aspects of our character that we wouldn't discover any other way. It's nature's blind spot illuminator. 
If only we could let go of our ego and see adversity as a torch, not a torture, a personal gift, not a personal punishment. So why do bad things happen to good people? I I don't know. I think we have three choices, though. The first is that somebody, God, the devil, or just a sloppy transgalactic engineering team, is responsible. They're out to get us, or they just suck at doing their job. The second is that there is no sense to it all, which calls into question the sensibility of the whole system. And the third is that there's some meaning behind it, and that there's an opportunity. For those among us who believe in reincarnation and soul contracts and so on, the third option seems sensible, even if we have to struggle to embrace it. But let's for a moment consider the second scenario. Even if there's no sense, no meaning, no plan to all this chaotic and potentially dangerous living process we've fallen into, what then? I mean, we're hurtling through space at anywhere between 44,000 and 550,000 miles per hour, depending on your reference point, with absolutely no control of the vehicle, what could possibly go wrong? Well, okay, let's say there's no plan. There's only experience. Here we are, hurtling uncontrollably through space, having a human experience. And we experience something that we don't like. What do we do with that? We can absorb it and move on. We can deny it, rail against it as unjust, and pretend that isn't how it is, and engage in dysfunction. Disconnecting from reality makes it harder to be functional. Or we can harvest something from it. But how? Well, for me, the most important essential first step is not to take it personally. Which should be easy at this point, since we've embraced the idea that we're on a stage with no stage directions, no plot, no omniscient narrator. So, Nothing is personal. Even people who are acting, let's say, malevolently, are not doing anything personal to you. They're just acting out their own story, with you as an incidental prop. And that, by the way, means that you are just acting out your own story with everything and everyone around you as an incidental prop. Pretty weird, huh? It devolves quickly into Descartes' Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. But beyond that, we can't be sure of anything. I suspect a more accurate way of saying this is that I recognize that I have experiences, therefore I am. So let's get back to having an experience. Here I am having an experience of adversity. It's not personal. I'm being buffeted by the storm of all of our collective experiences. What do I do about it? I can't blame anybody, because none of it is personal. I can't necessarily stop it from happening. Oftentimes the forces that come together are overwhelming, or an experience happens quickly and delivers seemingly permanent consequences. So, what's left? Here's where I begin to look for the blind spot. Here's where adversity becomes the teacher and the torch. Everything that happens to me happens to something, some version or aspect of me. That aspect of me is experiencing the world from a very specific perspective. That perspective is hugely determined by my conditioning 
and my value system. Bearing that in mind, now the good doctor inside me compels me to ask the question, where does it hurt? Where indeed? Over the years, I've gotten better and better at asking and answering this question. Where does it hurt? The first place, the first place to look is the ego. So much of our suffering comes from pain the ego experiences. Interestingly, the ego is typically a proud, protective, silly, and somewhat immature being that has not learned very much that's absolutely true, but what it has learned, it clings to as absolute truth. That's our conditioning. How deep does that conditioning go? Really deep. Ask anyone who has healed a real, actual, physical trauma through the power of the breath. The entire process is one of identifying where it hurts, recognizing that the pain is just the tip of the story and going deeper and deeper into the experience. Fundamental to this process is an acknowledgement and often the discovery that we're much more flexible, mutable, and plastic than we've been led to believe. Done expertly, where does it hurt becomes a deep dive into the subtle aspects of our nature. And our bodies are just one aspect of ourselves. The body is, relatively, slow to adjust to realizations and shifts in our consciousness. And our bones and nerves are perhaps the slowest parts within our bodies. But they do adjust. The body can and does re-resonate with shifts in our awareness. I've been doing some very deep cleaning of some very old wounds. At least it seems deep to me compared with my old way of experiencing. Through the combination of body awareness and attentiveness to my breath, I've found pockets of old stuff, a kind of psychic gunk stuck in parts of my body that have been identified, tended to, and transformed. I've been taking out the psychic trash quite regularly over the past couple of years, and the process has been accelerating lately. This trash is both mental and physical. My triggers are shifting. They're harder to set off, and there seem to be fewer of them. I'm also much more grounded in the reality of my circumstances. I delude myself much less about myself and my surroundings, and as a result, I'm counting my blessings and forgiving myself much more. And what's even better is that I'm not as stuck in repeating patterns. Sure, they're still there, but when I'm on my game, I can see them for what they are. That I'm semi-consciously sowing the seeds of my own harvest of adversity. I'm subtly crafting the circumstances for the teacher, the torch of adversity, to appear. Some aspects of myself I am not yet able to discover and deal with any other way. Heather Ashamaro, who joined me here on Convergence last December, shared some Toltec wisdom that I embrace almost every day. She said, You can't get to where you want to go if you are unable or unwilling to recognize where you currently are. If you try to make changes from a place where you wish you were instead of where you actually are, you're not going to make very good progress. 
The process of true change must start with a recognition of your current condition. What is the nature of the soil you're standing in? How much sunlight are you actually getting? Are you blooming? Are you bearing fruit? Do you need water, rest, pruning, a good bath in insecticidal soap, perhaps? The key here is that proper self-observation cannot occur without examining your whole self. And where you're experiencing adversity, where you're experiencing pain, is part of your whole self. And where you're experiencing pain, there are really two choices. You can examine it, or you can hide from it. If you hide from it or numb it, you won't learn anything about it. If you examine it, you have to go into it and feel it. It's the total opposite of our conditioning. Pain equals bad, says our conditioning. But pain, pain is just pain. I'm fond of saying that there are two kinds of pain. Pain where healing is occurring, and pain where healing is not occurring. I know which kind I'd rather feel. But wait, can't we just choose to not feel pain? Well, some of us can, kind of. Most of us try. A large swath of our behavior, genetic, inherited, and cultural, stems from the desire to avoid pain. We can try to insulate ourselves from the experiences of life, but then we're insulating ourselves from the experiences of life. How satisfying is that going to be? And how much will we grow? What kind of harvest will we find? And honestly, it's too late to insulate yourself. Because if you're older than five, you've already had a bucket full of experiences that have conditioned you to a particular and largely inaccurate view of the world. Which means everything you're experiencing is happening through that weird, distorted lens of your parents, your culture, and your personal experience. So even your choices regarding how to insulate yourself and what to insulate yourself from are bound to be just as ineffective as your lens is inaccurate. We reap what we sow. That means we get out of it what we put into it. We experience the world as a reflection of our own expression into the world. How is that possible, you may ask? Isn't the world full of mechanisms set in motion by others? Aren't we at the mercy of all that? What possible impact can my own insignificant, under-resourced efforts have on this grand juggernaut? Well, I think it's maybe a mistake to try to answer these questions before discovering all of who you really are. It can be misleading to try to evaluate your hand in all this when parts of yourself are being applied unconsciously to the cultivation of who knows what in your particular corner of the garden. Chances are you're not applying all of yourself consciously to the unwinding of problems of your experience. In fact, chances are quite good that you're actually subconsciously crafting adversity unconsciously so that you can discover aspects of yourself that you wouldn't be able to see any other way and as a result, become more conscious of who you really are. From the perspective of a diminished self, having an impact on the universe you experience may seem impossible. It defies common sense. But then, so does moving towards pain. This whole place is a garden. 
and we are both a part of the garden and one of the gardeners. We get to choose just how consciously we garden, and it starts with a careful and willing examination of the complete self, including the unsavory, unseemly, and painful parts, and the adversity that illuminates them. And isn't that the loving thing to do anyway? What gardener would expect a harvest from his garden without tending to it, nurturing it, cultivating it? And what harvest would he find? We'll be right back. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact HiC at tarotbyhic.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. I want to share a story with you now from my recent experiences hiking in the Wasatch Mountains here in my new home in Utah. I've been hesitating a little to share this story because, well, I suspect it's going to be a little irreverent and maybe slightly out of character for me. It's about skunk medicine. And while it may be laced with a bit of, I don't know, scatological humor born of sociological discomfort, I think it's a powerful teaching and worth sharing. I admit, I'm a little embarrassed to talk about it, and the irony is not lost on me that I'm about to enter this conversation and have been led to this engagement with skunk medicine just as I've recently made my home in one of the most conservative counties in the entire United States, living as I do now, quite literally, across the street from Brigham Young University, ground zero for Mormon principles, indoctrination, and social mores part of which is a kind of a potent combination of discipline and conformity that, well, just isn't very skunk-like. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. So I'm new to this area, having moved here in February of this year, 2015. I miss my beautiful California. The ocean, the cliffs along the beach, the sweeping skies and sunny disposition. The vibe of California is energetic but laid back. Outdoorsy, yet easy. Live and let live. Diversity is reality, and it's part of the magic and the fun. Utah, by contrast, is desert. Starkly beautiful. The quote-unquote valley that lays into Utah Lake and the Great Salt Lake is about 4,200 feet above sea level. The air is thinner. The vegetation more sparse, drier very definitely not coastal. The mountains that rise up are taller than the California coastal range by a lot, more like the Sierras, but they fairly jump out of the valley with almost no foothills to speak of. It lends an atmosphere of of starkness, maybe a little bit unforgiving, maybe a little more challenging. The ecology here is, as a consequence, a little less diverse. The plants are adapted to limited water, and limited soil. Lots of heat in the summer and cold in the winter. I can see how the blanket of life that embraces the earth here is thinner, more tenuous, and in some cases maybe more tenacious because 
you might not get another chance around here. Water is the elixir of life. And here you can see where it is and where it isn't. There's a kind of unforgiving discipline to the terrain here. A mistake can cost you, whether you're a plant or an animal. So there's a kind of order and simplicity to what works. It's not as diverse. I see fewer raptors gracing the skies, fewer varieties of songbirds, fewer rodents and rabbits. There are lots of deer, and because the landscape is a little more bare, I see them very often. Of course, they also come to visit me in my suburban backyard because the greenery down here is much juicier than the, the brownery up there in the hills. So I've been exploring the local canyon just a few miles from my home, getting acquainted with the, the power of the land. Magnificent rock walls, both granite and red rock sandstone. Craggy cliffs, scree-filled washes, and at the floor of the canyon itself, a rocky creek bed with its own sparse vegetation popping up from amid the stones. Evening in the canyon, right around sunset, is quite magical. The hills across the broad valley illuminate with sunset purple. The clouds light up like fireworks, and the reflections on the placid surface of Utah Lake are stunning. The mountains themselves stay lit after the sun has set. You can see the sunset line rise gracefully up their faces. It's really quite powerfully beautiful. So I've been going up there after work, as often as every day, for maybe 45 minutes or so, just to breathe in the evening breeze as it flows down off the snow-capped mountains. Thrilling, bracing, invigorating. It's a great place to do Qigong. It's also a really popular hiking place for folks from town and students from the university. So here I am, middle-aged guy, balding, long gray hair blowing in the breeze, doing these very weird body movements that are slow and strange, accompanied by deep breathing. And these very nice, courteous, monoculture suburbanites are taking their evening stroll. I have to tell you, it feels a little weird. I feel a little weird. I wouldn't think twice about doing Qigong at the beach in Pacifica, but on a rock facing the mountain at Red Rock Canyon Trailhead Park at sunset? I feel like an alien, a stranger in a strange land. But then, then there's skunk. I was walking, scrambling, hiking, down along the creek bed, imagining what I would be doing if I were a natural man in a native capacity. I realized I'd, I'd probably be A, looking for water, and B, practicing throwing rocks for accuracy in case I spotted some small game that I might harvest for food. Think about that yourself. Scrambling around a dry creek bed, selecting rocks as projectiles for hunting, throwing them at targets of various sizes, at various distances, from various positions, to see if you could get yourself or your family a meal. That's pretty different from a suburban stroll at sunset. And nobody but me down in the creek bed. Well, not exactly nobody. The smell of skunk is hard to miss or misunderstand. The odor can be overwhelmingly, nauseatingly strong. 
like when my dog years ago wouldn't give up on harassing one. But most of the time it's not. It's just definitely there. I think that's a key characteristic of skunk smell. It's persistent. It doesn't just erupt and dissipate like a <clears throat> human expression of gas might. It's more of a statement of purpose than an accident of diet. And it smells strong. You know, I watched that interaction years ago between my dog and the skunk. My dog was highly agitated. The skunk was extremely calm. My dog barked and made a lot of noise. The skunk just turned its hindquarters and calmly sprayed. My dog didn't take the hint. The scent was pungent, but he didn't quite get the message. He aggressed further on the skunk, and, and again, the skunk didn't really bat an eye. He just waited for my dog to get closer and sprayed him right in the face, right in his open mouth and up his nose. My dog yelped and ran away and then in circles for a good five minutes. The skunk? It just waddled along on its way, quite nonplussed by the whole interaction. Trailing that powerful scent, calmly careless about folks knowing it was there. This, I think, is the essence of skunk medicine. While most animals will go out of their way not to be discovered by scent, the skunk turns that paradigm on its head. I don't care if you smell me, it says. I'm here, it announces, without braggadocio. No roar, no howl, no noisy entrance or exit, no threat, just a statement of presence. I'm here, it says, and I'm not concerned that you know, nor am I concerned with what you think of my announcement. It's strange for a prey animal to have so little concern for its visibility to the senses of other animals. But that's the skunk. Not aggressive, just completely comfortable in its own skin because it has a powerful defense against aggression. What does it take for you to be comfortable in your own skin? Does it take that kind of powerful defense? I'm not worried because I'm not in danger. What kind of dangers might you actually be defending against? Really, I mean, as you walk through your life, what kind of defense do you really need? And from what kinds of dangers? And what would such a defense for you look like? Well, for the skunk, it's a strong body odor. So let's start there. And this is where it gets a little hard. Imagine if you could be that comfortable. That you could, at will, expel an unpleasant scent that would make it unmistakably clear that you were present. And furthermore, that you didn't care whether anybody liked it or not. How would that feel to be that free, to be that immune to the criticism of others, that you could be yourself, your own pungent-smelling, uniquely stinky self, wherever you went. Think of it in very human terms. Imagine you could pass gas, not slipping out silent putts hoping they didn't smell, but really letting go with the casual but express intention of clearly, unmistakably, 
announcing your presence. I know, it's hard for me to even say, much less for me to encourage you to imagine it, but don't laugh and don't give it up. Go for it. What would that feel like? How would that freedom feel? Being willing to own your own beingness, regardless of how others thought of you. Not aggressive, not threatening, just completely confident in who you are, regardless of the judgment of others. Skunk medicine is the medicine of personal acceptance and the embrace of self, of individuality, and of self-expression. It's not an aggressive medicine. It doesn't roar or saber-rattle. It doesn't threaten. It's simply an announcement of self and love of self that deflects the judgments of others in favor of embracing one's own being. Qigong on a rock, facing a mountain in the wind. That's me. Yes, I'm different. Yes, I may look alien to the local monoculture. But if skunk can do it, well, so can I. We'll be right back. Yes, we've added to our lineup of lively, thought-provoking shows. But don't forget our original Sunday morning lineup at 10.30 a.m. Join us for Healing Conversations with Mildred Lynn McDonald every first Sunday. Revolution with Heisey Lutmers every second Sunday. Convergence with John Carousella every third Sunday. And our popular on-air call-in show the fourth Sunday of every month. We're excited. Give us a listen as we continue to create new and entertaining ways for you to shine your inner light. Join us at Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. What do warriors, gardeners, and skunks have in common? What does the grist of war and self-delusion have in common with gardening, adversity, being your true self? Well, it's about living a full, awakened, and continuously awakening life. Finding and walking one's true path. And since today, April 19th, is my birthday, I thought it was useful to remind myself of just what that takes. May you also discover and walk your true path. May you have the courage to be yourself. And may you tend your garden to a rich and satisfying harvest. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for our live on-air call-in show, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.